Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about how climate change is forcing migration out of low-lying coastal areas with Sonia Shah. She's an award-winning reporter who traveled to an island that was almost completely underwater after Hurricane Dorian hit a year ago. It's called Abaco. It's part of the Bahamas. But first, the Supreme Court. Trump pushing ahead to replace Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg before the next president is sworn in on January 20th suggests that we need to expand the court to right the wrongs committed by Trump and Mitch McConnell. For comment, we turn to Ellie Mistal. He's the nation's justice correspondent, and he writes the magazine's monthly column, Objection. He's also an Alfred Nobler Fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC. We saw him with Ari Melber on Monday. Ellie, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again, John. There are now several ideas for reforming the court. Let's start with the one on everybody's mind, expanding the court. This has been presented since RBG died as a way to correct the crimes of Trump and Mitch McConnell. You may recall that they refused to hold hearings for Merrick Garland, and now they say they'll replace Ginsburg right before the election, which Trump seems likely to lose. That will deny voters the right to participate in the decision. And so the argument goes, we should add two because we were robbed of two. What do you think of that argument? Uh, look, I'm a big fan of court expansion, court reform, court packing, whatever you want to call it. I love it. Um, <laughs> I was I was a fan of, of court expansion uh, long before uh, 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 Ginsburg uh, tragically passed away, um, for two simple reasons. One, as you've already said, John, Mitch McConnell was the first mover. He is the person who changed the number of Supreme Court justices from eight to nine, so long as a Democrat was president. Um, not only did Mitch McConnell invent this completely uh, made-up rule that a justice could not be appointed during a presidential election year, he and his caucus indicated that should Hillary Clinton win, but Republicans hold on to the Senate, they would hold that seat open indefinitely. All right, um, Republicans had no shame when it came to reducing the number of justices down to eight. The Democrats similarly have no shame in expanding the number of justices should they take back the Senate and the White House. That is what I call the vengeance argument for, for court reform, right? Like they did it first, we do it now. That's how raw political power works, Mitch, if that's how you want to play it. 
But we are told, what if? What if the Republicans regain control of government in 2024 and they vote to add two of their own to make up for the two that we added? Then we'll have, instead of 11, we'd have 13 on the court. Wouldn't that be terrible? I love it. I want the more the merrier. As Kermit the Frog once said in Muppets Take Manhattan, I want more dogs and cats and bears and chickens and things. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of good government reasons to have an expanded Supreme Court. I will note to your listeners, because a lot of them probably don't understand this, the lower courts, the district courts, all of them operate, almost all of them operate with more than nine justices. The Second Circuit, I live in New York, um, we have 15 justices on the Second Circuit out you out there uh, in California. We're at 29 justices for the, for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. There is nothing about the number nine that is sacrosanct. So if Democrats add justices and the Republicans want to come over the top and add justices, that's fine. When the Democrats are in control again, they'll add even more. And all of that works well. You're saying... 11 isn't bad, 13 isn't bad, even 29 isn't bad? Are you contemplating 29 like the Ninth Circuit? I, I think the Supreme Court should st should be at 19. I think that the Democrats should expand it by 10. And if the Republicans want to come over to the top and expand it by 10 more to, give us, to get us to 29, I have no problem with a 29-person Supreme Court. I have no problem. I, I don't think it starts getting unwieldy until you get much north of 50. I, I honestly think that you can, you could, you could, absolutely have a 50-person Supreme Court um, without, not only without constitutional problems, but with actual constitutional benefits. And I think that's the thing that people kind of don't, don't appreciate. They're not thinking big enough here. What we see with lower circuits is that most of their cases are handled by three judge panels. Those are three judges, judges chosen at random from the entire circuit. Randomness. Well, my goodness, that is the kind of thing that decreases partisan fervor about a case. If you don't know what the party, party politics are of the judge that's going to be assigned your case, that, that alone um, adds an air of impartiality to a system that has become so obviously partisan and political. Now, as you know, the Ninth Circuit will hear, in all the circuits, they can hear the, a case as a full circuit, but it requires a majority vote of that circuit. Now, contrast that from the Supreme Court right now, where it only takes four justices, a minority of the court, to hear a case in front of the full court. This change would now require a majority of justices to vote in order to hear a case. And the other thing here, and I, this is a little bit legal weedy, but there are so many people who say and act like what they really want is a Supreme Court of moderation. A Supreme Court that doesn't go too far to the right, doesn't go too far to the left, kind of stays in the middle mainstream um, of American life. Well, the way to do that is to have more justices in the mix, because it is the process of trying to write a decision that's going to attract a majority of your colleagues that actually moderates the decision, right? If all the conservatives have to do is write, a, write an opinion that Clarence Thomas likes, that, that, that's going to be one kind of opinion, right? But if you're trying to, to cobble together a majority of 10 people or 15 people or 20 people in order to get your decision through, that alone will, in many cases, moderate 
and mainstream the decisions that come out of the Supreme Court. It is difficult to imagine a string of hardcore partisan 15, 14 decisions. That's just not likely to happen. So for all of these good government reasons, um, I think an expanded Supreme Court does wonders for depoliticizing the Supreme Court. Could you not have some laws passed with a requirement that they could only be overturned by a supermajority, not by five to four? Again, that's constitutionally dicey because Article 3 does say that the entire judicial power of the United States is vested in the Supreme Court, which can be interpreted to mean that the Supreme Court gets to decide how it makes its own decisions. It would be, again, a difficult constitutional argument to go to John Roberts and tell him he can only make certain decisions based on having six votes or eight votes or nine votes. That's just, again, it's an interesting idea, but it's not something that is is point and click constitutional. And that means that Roberts has the final, Roberts and his conservative court has the final say. And so it's hard to It's hard to imagine that getting through. And another proposal that I've read about is called uh, jurisdiction stripping, uh, insulating specific laws from judicial review as a part of the legislation. What do you think about jurisdiction stripping? Yeah, that's also interesting. Um, It it is so the, the entire let's let's again, let's risk the weeds a little bit and remember that. As I just said, the Constitution says that the judicial power of the United States is vested in the Supreme Court. Doesn't say boo about what judicial power means. Thanks, founders. Way to be vague. (laughs) So judicial power is kind of what we say it is. Now, the controlling case really is 1801's famous Marbury v. Madison case, where at the time, Chief Justice John Marshall essentially invented the concept of judicial review, the concept that the Supreme Court could rule laws unconstitutional or not was new in 1801, and it was invented by the Supreme Court, not by statute. So there is some constitutional play here in the concept, and I imagine that a law saying that it was, and and I should say there are, other kind of small bore, but you know, still there, um, kind of laws that we we in the legislation um, tell the Supreme Court you have to uh, adopt strict scrutiny or you know a, a certain standard review for this law versus that law. So there is some constitutional play here. I, I just I don't think it, if you're thinking about the hot button issues, right? If you're thinking about an issue like a woman's right to choose or affirmative action or voting rights. I don't think that these are the kinds of issues that the Supreme Court will agree that it cannot rule upon, right? And again, to get that kind of reform through, you would fundamentally have to get the Supreme Court to agree to not exercise its power, which is just a tough sell. I see what you mean. Uh, You've proposed one other area of reform in your writings at The Nation, and that's uh, ethics reform. What are the current ethical guidelines for the Supreme Court? None. Can you believe that? None. (laughs) And the founders in their infinite wisdom did not put together a system of ethics that the Supreme Court has to follow. Um, We have legislatively 
um, put forth certain ethics rules that apply to lower courts. We've put forth certain ethics rules that apply to state courts. But we literally live in a world where a elected state judge in Peoria, Illinois, is under more ethical strictures than the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, John Roberts has made noises along with liberal Elena Kagan. They've made noises about maybe someday putting together a set of rules of ethics that the Supreme Court has to follow. But it is their belief, it is certainly Roberts's belief, that only the Supreme Court can impose ethics rules on itself. This goes back to the, they are appointed for life and cannot be removed um, while in good behavior. That only the Supreme Court can, can tell the Supreme Court what ethics rules it has to follow. So even as something as simple as recusals, um, so, you know, you, 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 you recuse yourself from judging a case because you are somehow involved in the case, right? Um, we have statutory recusal rules for many lower courts and many state courts. The Supreme Court has none. So the judges do recuse themselves, but it is when they feel like they should recuse themselves. So we're in a situation where, for instance, Elena Kagan has recused herself often from cases that she herself worked on as Obama's Solicitor General. Um, but Clarence Thomas refuses to recuse himself from cases that his wife has worked on as a lobbyist for whatever crazy conservative organization his wife happens to be working for at the moment. Um, there are no rules. And Roberts claims that only he can impose rules. Um, I think that he's wrong there. And I think that a, a full Supreme Court reform should include an ethics passage, um, an ethics section passed by the by the Senate um, as part of any kind of real court expansion thing. And that's, that is a fight that I would like to have in Roberts' house. I would like for John Roberts to put down in writing why he will not follow ethics rules passed by Congress um, that that that's an argument that I'd like to have. One final thing. When when you wrote for the nation.com about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you wrote about the value of her dissenting opinions. I always thought that the justice who writes a dissent is just conceding that they're a loser and that there really wasn't much point because dissenting opinions have no binding legal effect. So so what's the point of writing a dissenting opinion? I'll quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, who said that a, a dissent is written for a future age. The hope of dissenters is that their opinions, written in dissent, written in loss, written at a time where most people do not agree with them, becomes a beacon of hope for future generations and that those dissents one day become the law. And it has happened before. It has happened so many times in our history where a dissenting opinion in a small case goes on to be the opinion that people, the, the, that people in future generations cite as an example of how the law was wrong then and so how it shouldn't be applied now. I think the Korematsu dissent is one of the most famous ones um, where the court ruled that we should inter Japanese citizens. Um, and the dissenting opinion said that we shouldn't, and now it is the dissenting opinion in that case um, that we follow. The, the, the point about a dissent to me that, that even goes beyond the kind of rough and tumble, nitty gritty kind of legal 
and legalese, um, is that these people are not infallible. The law is not infallible. The law is not objective. The law is wrong often. And a good dissent reminds us that the law is wrong often and that we should do what we can to change it. A good dissent from Elie Mistal. He's the nation's justice correspondent, and he writes the magazine's monthly column, Objection. Elie, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. The recent fires across the Pacific states demonstrated some of the effects of deepening climate change, but some of the most far-reaching effects are being felt by poor people in low-lying island nations. Thanks to the lifestyles of the wealthy of the world, almost 200 million people will need to leave their homes as seas rise and increasingly severe storms hit. That's according to the National Academy of Sciences. Poor people have already been trapped by climate disasters, among other places, in the Bahamas. Sonia Shaw went to the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. That was a Category 5 monster that hit in September 2019, a year ago. She wanted to see what's happening in one low-lying set of islands. Sonia is an investigative journalist and author of critically acclaimed and award-winning books on science, human rights, and international politics. Her new book is The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. She's been a writing fellow at the Nation Institute and the Puffin Foundation. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, and The Nation. She's been featured on Fresh Air with Terry Gross and other NPR shows, as well as CNN, Al Jazeera, and BBC. Her TED Talk on malaria has been viewed by more than a million people. I'm one of them. We reached her today in Baltimore. Sonia Shaw, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, we think of the Bahamas as an island vacation paradise and a tax haven for the wealthy. It has No income tax, no capital gains tax, no inheritance tax, no tax on corporations. But the people you visited several months after Hurricane Doria hit were not high net worth individuals. No, they were not. I was focusing mostly on the Haitian community there, which is actually the biggest minority group in Bahamas. They're not talked about very much, but uh, this is a pretty booming uh, subpopulation on the islands. And they were really the most exposed to the uh, damages of Hurricane Dorian. And what happened in the aftermath seems to have left them even more exposed. The Bahamas got their independence from Britain in 1973. Was that a good thing for the Haitians who lived there? I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, you think there's a very deep-seated feeling in Bahamian culture that they are very different from other Caribbean peoples and very different in, in particular from Haitians. And I think that was part of developing a national identity for people in Bahamas after independence. So to distinguish themselves as separate from other Caribbean people and other Caribbean minorities that were present in the islands, they really had to come up with a new way of thinking about themselves. And a lot of that seems to have been about distinguishing between the Haitian people who are seen as people from, you know, a country that had a very violent revolution that were sort of 
you know, less civilized than the people of the Bahamas. And, and that was a very important part of sort of nation building at that time, because there wasn't really otherwise a, a very strong sense of national identity in Bahamas. Haiti is something like 60 miles to the southwest of the Bahamas. On the other side of the Bahamas is Miami. So if you're in a boat going from Haiti to Florida, you probably past the Bahamas. I learned from your piece in The Nation that U.S. immigration and homeland security has noticed this fact about the map. Oh, yes, they have. And so, you know, Bahamas is sort of the main landmass between Haiti and the United States. And so Bahamas has become very important in terms of um, the U.S.'s effort to control Haitians' arrival in the United States and even their capacity to make a asylum claim if they so desired. So, you know, the, so Bahamas has played a really important role in um, helping the U.S. Border, Border Patrol, Coast Guard and other agencies to repel Haitians from reaching the United States in the first place, whether it's, you know, getting security aid or, you know, there's Coast Guard and other American official agencies that are present all over Bahamas, sort of patrolling their seas and, and making sure that the Bahamas themselves don't allow any Haitians to come into the country in a way that would make it easy for them to then reach Florida and the rest of the United States. Let's talk now about Dorian. Of course, when Dorian headed for the Bahamas, the, the rich white people took off in their private jets or helicopters. Uh, category five means 185 mile an hour winds. What was it like there for the people who who couldn't leave? Well, that that was an an ama amazing stories to hear about when I went back. Of course, I mean most people who didn't leave probably died, um, and there hasn't been a very good uh, record of how many lives are lost. You know, of all the people who are living on these islands, there was the Haitians who are mostly the workers who are kind of you know cleaning the hotels and tending the gardens of the second homeowners and resorts and everything that are on these fancy islands. Um, and then there's a tourist and then there's this, uh, you know, a, a local Bahamian population um, without Haitian ancestry. And those people mostly evacuated. So, you know, there was an a emergency evacuation order. So most people were able to leave. But from what I could piece together, the Haitian communities were pretty much just full you know, right as Jorian was bearing down. And these are people who had lived through many hurricanes in the past, of course, you know, but almost everyone I talked to who had survived it said that this, it was, it, it wasn't even like a hurricane. It was like something completely new to them. There's a lot of different islands that are part of the Bahamas. You visited one called Abaco. Is that the way you pronounce it? That's right. So the Abaco Island and Grand Bahama were the two they're the two northernmost islands of the Bahamian archipelago, and they're the ones that were hit by Dorian. And Dorian really stalled on top of those two islands for the 36 or 40 hours that it stalled. So the rest of the Bahamian um, islands were not affected really at all. So they just got a little bit of, you know, hard weather. Um, but these two islands were in, in particular, you know, devastated. And Abaco had one of the largest Haitian populations out of all of Bahamas. Um, and they're mostly in these sort of large shanty towns that were essentially just not evacuated. So people are just living there. And these are, you know, shanty towns that are handmade shacks and, and homes that are very closely, you know, settled right together. There's not a lot of infrastructure. I mean, they literally have these tiny little passageways between the homes where you can't even get, you know, a, a, an emergency truck through, for example. 
And uh, the storm surge, what was the storm surge on Abaco? Um, so the storm surge, from what I could understand, was at least 20 feet. Um, I talked to some survivors who had ridden out the storm by perching on top of the rafters of a church. Oh. And this was, you know, a, a huge church. And they were there for several nights. They had all left the shantytown that was nearby and, and fled into this church. And, and they slowly just had to climb higher and higher up. And it took several days for those waters to go down. And they were watching, you know, family members be swept away in these in the storm surge. And this goes on for days. That, you know, it, it took days for that water to finally subside. And, and how much of Abaco is more than 20 feet above sea level? Um, none of it. It's, it's, none of it is. It's, I mean, all of Bahamas, I think the average height is three feet above sea level. So Bahamas is basically, you know, this, and this goes back to why Bahamas became the way it is, you know, became this sort of tourist destination is that they could never grow things on this place. Like it's sand. It's basically like a sandbar. You know, it's not like other Caribbean countries where you have, you know, volcanoes and, and rich soils and you can have this kind of plantation economy. You know, that didn't never really happen in Bahamas because there just isn't enough um, good agricultural prospects there. So it's, it's extremely low lying. You flew into Abaco six months after Dorian hit. What what did it look like at that point? What was going on there? So, so when you, you when you fly over it, it, it really just looks like a, a, it literally just looks like a sandbar. It does you don't really see a lot of land, and then that's especially true now because so many of the trees have been um, felled by Dorian's winds. So, so when you and and then you land there and. You know, there's still just a lot of debris, at least when I was there six months ago, there was, it, it was just piles of debris everywhere. The airport had been cleared out, so you could land in the airport. And the roads had been cleared. Um, but besides that, most of the structures had been demolished and the piles of debris were still kind of everywhere. So you can't really tell where you're going because there's no sort of visual markers of, okay, you know, here's, this is a home and this is a shopping mall and this, you, you can't tell the difference because there's no, you know, there's no signage, there's no vegetation, there's nothing that gives you that cue, <laughs> visual cue of like, this is where you are. So it's a very discombobulating feeling to be in that place. It looks like a big trash heap, essentially, with the roads going through it. Um, and the trees are very haunting that there's these, you know, and there be these old pine trees that they have there. Um, and they've all been stripped of all of their leaves. So they're just basically these tall stalks that kind of rise up. It, it's, it's very eerie. You, you wrote about seeing uh, lots of bulldozers at work uh, on Abaco when you visited there. Were, were they at work on, you know, building housing to bring back the residents? Well, that, I think that was the most striking thing about it is, I thought I would go there and there, you know, there would just be like this hive of activity of rebuilding and cleaning and everything. And it really wasn't like that. There were bulldozers in a few places. And these were the Haitian, the remains of the Haitian communities and shantytowns. Other than that, there was very little going on in terms of cleaning up or rebuilding, at least when I was there. And this was, of course, six months after the storm had had you know had ravaged the place so the government seemed to have been um very quick to get back into abaco and to clear out all the debris from the haitian communities their neighborhoods had been absolutely cleared of every last stick of debris encased in fencing new fan new fencing with barbed wire on the top 
<laughs> but other than that, it was everything else was just like as if the storm had just happened. Now, I, I know that the survivors of Hurricane Dorian included many people who tried to get into the United States because we know about this because President Trump talked about them. What what did he say about that? Some of them did get to Florida um, sort of right after the storm. Um, and that's when Tr- President Trump said, well, we're not taking any more. We're not going to offer them even, you know, the TPS status, the temporary protective status that is generally given to people who are, you know, surviving these huge traumas. And he said something like, oh, you know, we can't let them come over because there's uh, very bad people among these survivors. And this, you know, his whole mindset is so shaped by the 1980s and 90s. And and that was when there was a, you know, very active drug trade that was going through Bahamas. And, and I, you know, I think that's sort of how he was characterizing them. Very bad people. Mostly the refugees from the storm ended up in Nassau uh, in the Bahamas. How has that worked out? Well, many of them were afraid to go to Nassau, um, which is why they didn't evacuate to begin with. Um, Then after the storms, some of the survivors were able to get to Nassau. And Nassau is the capital city, of course. It's on a separate island from Abaco. And they were put up in shelters, government-run shelters, which were repurposed gymnasiums and things like that. And um, I went there and talked to the talked to some of the people who are still there. And there was sort of a steady stream of hurricane survivors who were in those shelters, just abandoning it because they were they felt they were being treated so badly there. If you didn't have work anymore in Abaco, then your permit was invalid. And so all of these people who, had, of course, they'd lost all their jobs because their island had been ruined. You know, all the resorts were demolished. So even if they were able to hang on to their work permit when they got to the hurricane shelters, their work permits had been invalidated. And so they were kind of stuck in these shelters um, with nowhere to go. If they leave, they're going to get deported. You know, they're going to get detained and deported. And and if they stay there, you know, they're not getting enough food. They're not getting, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't have any legal pathway to go anywhere. They're not allowed to go back to Abaco. The government said, right from the beginning that they're not going to allow anyone to rebuild in the Haitian neighborhoods anymore, which were, you know, unregulated structures. So they said, well, we're, you know, and that's why they bulldozed it all, encased it in, in fencing and said, you can't rebuild. Everyone else, yes, please rebuild Abaco, but not you. So we've been talking here about a, a small population that lived on a small island. You say that their fate and the fate of others like them around the world will soon have much larger ramifications for all of us. Please explain. Well, we know that, you know, in coming decades, around 200 million people are going to have to pick up and leave from where they're living right now. We're kind of re-scrambling where you can, you know, the the habitability of the planet is changing. Um, And a lot of us are settled along coastlines because of our history of shipping and, and all of that. And those are places that are becoming more and more difficult to live. People are going to have to change change their settlement patterns. And we can see that most clearly on an island, of course, right? Because there's no, there's no higher ground to go to within your own community or your own neighborhood or even your own nation. So they have to cross international borders in order to reach higher ground. So, you know, I think the underlying point is... The climate crisis is a catastrophe of our own making, and we need to address it. But the migration that has to happen in order to respond to the climate crisis 
that's not a crisis. That is part of the solution. So we should be thinking about ways to facilitate people moving into new places before these climate disasters strike. You know, I mean, the tragedy of what happened in Bahamas is those, not that those people moved, but that they couldn't move, that they were trapped. And that's what made their situation such a human rights disaster. Um, and if they were able to move, say, they would only be able to move in a crisis-driven fashion, right? So you have this mass disruptive migration that happens all at once. Um, if we create legal pathways for people to move out of places where they're more exposed into places where they're less so, then we can change the pace of that kind of migration and the disruptiveness that goes along with it. Sonia Shaw, her report on the climate crisis and migration is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. It's part of a global journalism initiative called Covering Climate Now, co-founded by The Nation and the Columbia Journalism Review in association with The Guardian. Our partners include more than 400 news outlets with a combined audience approaching 2 billion people. This week is a week of joint coverage of Climate Politics 2020. Sonia, thanks for talking with us today. I hope we can do this again soon. I'd love that. Thank you so much. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.